When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So when I've read my poetry here, it's usually I usually present it or introduce it as a kind of a challenge or, or just a basic question. How do you write poetry about archaeology? How do you write poetry about history? How do you write poetry about uh, a mythological story or a story from a religious scripture that is very familiar to people or that in fact uh, isn't very familiar to people anymore? Today the question is, how do you write poetry about the Holocaust or the Shoah? The first answer to that question is you don't. Um, there's that uh, famous uh, phrase from uh, uh, what the late 40s, I suppose. I can't remember who said it. Uh, the idea that Auschwitz and the concentration camps uh, sort of make poetry impossible anymore. I don't think people actually believe that, but if you're going to write poetry about those things and about those places, I suppose, at least for me, the impulse is not to do it, not to do it at first. Uh, Daniel Mendelssohn, in his wonderful book called The Lost, has put it as eloquently, eloquently as uh, I've ever heard it, and that is basically that uh, as long as people are still alive who actually lived through those events, as long as they are still around to tell their stories, uh, you should listen to their stories. Uh, you shouldn't write fiction or poetry about them yourself. And basically that is what I hew to, not, not as a sense of censoring myself, um, but just as a basic guideline. It feels events like that, and there are others, feel like places that you don't want to tread on with merely a poem, and you don't want to disrespect them by turning them into some kind of aesthetic event. You don't want to make it seem as if uh, a polished poem with a beginning, a middle, and an end can somehow uh, wrap up or understand or make sense of uh, something of this magnitude. Um, you just don't want to cheapen it, I suppose. And I avoided it as much as I possibly could, but there were two times in the past year where uh, I did feel compelled to do it, and I finally did. And I imagined at some point just having a small book called Scraps, where I could collect these if any more ever come. Uh, the first of them came as a response to watching uh, Cloud Landsman's uh, uh, seemingly endless documentary called Shoah. And 
During one of the early episodes, Landsman and an interpreter uh, go to, I believe, a village in Poland where uh, the locals there remembered there being concentration camps in the area. They remembered the trains going by and the Jews on them. Uh, they remembered feeling badly for them because they knew uh, how, to what extent they would admit uh, how much they knew, but they knew that basically trains went filled with people and those people were never seen again. And the next day or the next week, trains went filled with people somewhere down the tracks in the woods there, and you never heard from them again. Um, and it was kind of an astonishing experience. I almost wrote the poem as a commercial for Shoah to get people to watch this. Uh, it's an incredible thing to see these people who were interviewed in the 70s, by the way, not, uh, not that far removed from the events. And there's a, an odd sort of demeanor they have. These are poor people, uh, mostly farmers, um, who never would have had the means to move away from where they had spent all their lives anyway. And so they stayed where they were. I believe this was near this, I believe uh, the episode this comes from was uh, a village near Treblinka. And it just struck uh, not just me, but my wife and I as we were watching it. But nobody thought to change the name of the town or the train station of Treblinka. They never thought to raise the uh, uh, the places along the tracks where uh, the Jews were shuffled off the trains, um, and they never thought, and they never thought, or they never had the means to move away. And so, when I came to write this poem called "A Plowed Field." it was not really a judgment of these people. Uh, there are some times where they do seem a little callous in remembering these Jews, these people who were not them or anyone they would ever know, uh, who suffered this terrible fate. There are some times when uh, they seem a little callous or indifferent. But in general, the experience was, and what I was trying to put into words, was the fact that these people, not scholars, not even the uh, Nazi theorists who put all of this into action, um, not the people today who deny the Holocaust ever happened, um, not all of the people, not the poets certainly, not the painters or the movie makers or the documentarians, um, those were not the people who witnessed this day after day. Those were not the people who saw these things happen day after day. Many of us might think, what would it be like to live in the middle of something like that, an event like that, and to have it take place not to you, but to someone else, and to take place not near where you're living, but outside of where you're living, uh, so that you aren't really even a participant. You're not even a, a bystander. You're not a, a willing bystander who, who could have done very much about it. You're just there. And like, uh, just imagine someone these days living uh, 
those houses, those poor houses that are uh, right by the freeway that never got torn down. Uh, you just look in your backyard and uh, every few weeks, every few days, uh, uh, semi-trucks go by and you know that they're filled with people. And that just happens. And it seems to me that this, this, and not the scholarship that comes later, not the calculations of how many dead and how they did it, uh, not the mechanics of it, um, that these people were the real witnesses to history. And somehow they were actually the real, uh, what would you say, uh, witnesses to the real substance of history. That is, that our books and our retrojections and our thoughts afterward and our commemorations and our weeping or our denials or whatever it is, all of those things come after. They are a way of uh, coming to terms with or finding comfort or explaining history. But they are not a way of understanding how historical events, especially extremely brutal ones, actually take place. Um, a very minor parallel to this is what I'm doing right now. I'm sitting in a, a strip mall staring at a, a, a sign for a Subway restaurant and a, a, a Snap Fitness store we can go and work out and a School Bells school uniform store. And these sentences are pouring out at me with no script. Um, it's this conjunction, this apparent incongruity uh, that is just haunting, um, and even more so when what you're talking about is something as momentous as the Holocaust. And so I just tried. Uh, I don't know if I got it, but uh, this is a poem called A Plowed Field. It says, A plowed field abutted the barbed wire. And the plowed field outlasted the barbed wire. And the plower of the field survived to keep plowing his field. And every now and then says what he saw. A muddy road in a forest. A castle, a church, a van, a pit, a camp. The bricks of the building still there. The same river and tracks. The same ramp that we can enter the perimeter that devoured them all, the square feet where it happened and it doesn't matter. Kids pass through to get to school. The synagogue is now a warehouse. A man in a wagon in the distance. He is all belly and sweat and sunburn. And from his carefree mouth he'll tell you about it. He might laugh and say the Jews ran Poland. He might say their women were gorgeous, or how he saw the trainloads go by, and where they went was silent the next day. The signs are still there. The letters that spell the names Chelno, Birkenau, others. No need to change them. And the plain faces of the locals, machinists, old women, the retired, the wrinkled, pious, cheerful, rude, still go to the church where the Jews were kept, 
before they were herded and gassed, and they remember and think it was awful, but they stayed and never moved away. This is what history is, that it happens where people are only half paying attention, that an old woman who wakes to make coffee has the memory of these things in her head and still makes coffee and enjoys drinking it, who saw history more clearly than the perpetrators, who saw it walk by on the road, but it happened between one thing and another and did not involve her. And the second poem is simply called Train. Um, anyone who has read the books of Primo Levi will uh, recognize where this comes from. Uh, both in his book Survival at Auschwitz and this small paragraph I'm about to read from his book called The Drowned and the Saved, will remember the attention he gives, not, uh, not just to life in Auschwitz, where he was and where he survived, uh, but to the train there. And this is what he simply says uh, in one of his books in uh, The Drowned and the Saved. Almost always, at the beginning of the memory sequence, stands the train, which marked the departure toward the unknown, not only for chronological reasons, but also for the gratuitous cruelty which with, the, which with those otherwise innocuous convoys of ordinary freight cars were employed for an extraordinary purpose. Among our many such accounts, there is not one diary or story in which this train does not appear. The sealed boxcar, converted from a commercial vehicle into an ambulatory prison or even an instrument of death. It is always packed, but the numbers of persons who, on each occasion, were jammed into it seems to be based on a rough calculation. From 50 to 120, depending on the length of the journey and the hierarchic level that the Nazi system assigned to the human material being transported. And it goes on and on. I won't uh, read the whole paragraph because the or much longer than that, because uh, his account is better than the poem, and um, I just wanted to hit the, the poem to almost be a footnote to what he says. Um, his account is unbearable, uh, five or six or ten pages, uh, and the fact that he is able to t talk about it and write about it later and dissect the means of Nazi cruelty is... Um, something that we ought to be thankful for. And uh, I just wanted to put this into a small poem about people who are getting ready to leave on those trains. In his book, Survival at Auschwitz, he remembers what the night before the departure was like. And the image that always caught me was uh, of parents uh, still drying their children's clothes on a line of barbed wire and getting them ready for the next day. And this is just called Train. By morning, the children's clothes had dried on the barbed wire and were packed with toys for the train. The drunks felt themselves sober and the hasty lust from last night evaporated. 
but the children were clean and their skin scrubbed with love. Prayers were left for the childless and the alone, while hot water and the habits of home were the worship of parents going with their children, taking them to leave them, leading them to the ends of memory. And I don't really even know that uh, that does it or that I can even read it, but, uh, but that is that poem. And uh, I realized that uh, I would not have been able to write that until I was a parent. And um, the stories of the Holocaust, the Shoah, that hit me the most now are of parents. And now, now that the prayers of Jewish life are entering my memory, um, it is also just the stories of people going to their deaths, reciting the prayers from memory that I now say every day, and how, how those connections exist alongside the more wonderful connections, such as reading a history of Jews in Spain, and, uh, and how uh, they would send emissaries to the Jewish communities in Babylonia with uh, questions or just news. And this is, what, 10th or 11th century. And when news would finally come back from Babylonia to Spain, there would almost be a party occasion where they could read this letter aloud to the entire community. And it said in one of the books, as I was reading it, that they said such and such a prayer. And I realized I say those exact same prayers uh, every day, every week. So that is that. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.